Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Uh, we're taping this on a Friday. We recorded the rest of our podcast yesterday with some amazing guests, but we want to break in and get, uh, offer you an interview with Tony Romanucci, a really special guest today. He's been on the show before on some other cases that have been in the news, but we're really, really fortunate to have him on our podcast today. Obviously, he's all over in the news. He's highly in demand. He's one of the attorneys representing uh, the family of George Floyd. And Tony, thank you so much for joining us on Legal Face Off today. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, so we want to jump in with your perspective on some news earlier in the week with the upgrade of the criminal charges against um, the one individual, uh, former officer Chauvin, and then the charging, sorry about that, the charging of the three other officers. There's been a lot of talk that even though Chauvin has been charged with second degree murder, that's not enough. A lot of folks want him and the others charged with first degree murder. What is your perspective and the perspective of the family on that issue? Well, first of all, if, 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 if you got a chance to see the press conference on Monday, I was very, very clear that there should be charges against the three officers who were on the scene. I, I, I was adamant from the very beginning, even before Monday's press conference, that those, that those bystanders were shameless. I think it was scum what they did, uh, just watching, especially the one who was standing trying to block the camera view. I, I, I have no words for somebody who fails to intervene when they are trained or supposedly trained to do so, and it's their community duty to do that. It takes away the basis of what it says to protect and serve when you have officers who are complicit and accomplices to literally, now we know it's murder. Derek Chauvin committed a murder, whether it's first degree or second degree, it's a murder. And those three officers who were there are equally complicit. Tony, I want to pick up on what you just said because it's really interesting. And we talked about this yesterday on our podcast with some of our guests. When you look at the conduct of these four individuals, um, obviously Chauvin's conduct is beyond what any human being would, would, would accept as you know, consistent with how you act on this planet. But it's almost when you look at the officer who's standing there, it's almost in a way worse. And it's, you know, it's hard to sort of say, they're all terrible. They're all murder, right? And it's all disgusting human behavior. But it's almost more abhorrent to us all to see someone standing there in the face of what is so clearly, um, you know, subhuman treatment of another individual that I almost am more appalled that I anticipate a jury will feel the same way, but the officer just standing there. Again, it's all equally abhorrent. But I imagine the family looking at that individual standing there has to be just outraged. I, I, I agree, Rich. I mean, it, it's to, to me, watching somebody stand by while somebody is literally, I mean, George was publicly executed. I don't know any other way to describe what happened to George as, as a public execution. And, 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 and let me tell you, yesterday I was at the memorial service. And when we had to stand for eight minutes and 46 seconds in silence, equaling the time that George was you know, restrained. It was one of the most painful eight minutes and 46 seconds I've ever experienced in my life. Think of how many 
lost opportunities and chances there were for those police officers, knowing that Chauvin was committing a crime, knowing that George Floyd was going to die, how many chances did they have to stop? And instead, what did he do? He attempted to intervene. He literally, he held up his blue shield. You know, we hear about the thin blue line in the code of silence. That's it in play right there. You saw it happening on video in public display. It's, it's, it's shocking. It really is. I mean, you know, the shocking, the, the, the nature of that video doesn't dissipate even after a week or, or, or some days, even after viewing a few times. Um, it's, it's absolutely abhorrent. Um, Tony, there was some other news this week about the autopsy results. There's now a couple of different autopsies. I know you're not the prosecutor, you're representing the family, but can you give our listeners a quick um, guide of what the evidence uh, will show, in your opinion, in terms of the autopsy. Again, we've heard that Mr. Floyd had, there was some evidence of COVID and perhaps there was some um, drugs in the system or something. Explain to us what you think the relevance of that is and whether the defense will make an issue of it. Again, from my perspective, nothing else detracts from what we saw in the video. Nothing else before uh, this individual is on the ground, face down in handcuffs, really matters. But can you give us your perspective on that? Absolutely. So what, what, what's interesting about now we know that there are three medical examiners who had an opportunity to actually conduct an autopsy. So we have three different levels of opinion. What's interesting and what is extremely important and relevant in the end is that all three concluded that this was death by the hands of another, which equals homicide. Now, in terms of the manner of death, they also all agree that there was a mechanism of injury which employed either strangulation, crushing, or the inability for George to breathe, which cut off oxygen to his brain and blood to his heart. None of those other factors, whether or not he was COVID positive, the fentanyl, um, he even had caffeine and, and cigarette uh, nicotine in his system. None of those are a contributing factor to his death. None of the MEs contributed uh, or placed any contribution of those to his death. So therefore, it's all red herrings. For those people out there who think, oh my God, he was COVID positive. Well, so are 3 million other people on this planet COVID positive and through no fault of their own. Um, in this country alone, we have, I'm not even sure, I lost track, 1.8 million people COVID positive. So none of that contributed to Floyd's death, zero. So therefore, it's irrelevant, it's a red herring, it's a sideshow. Anybody who tries to put that into play, it's a losing battle because all of the MEs agree on the cause of death, the manner of death, now, they reached that opinion differently, but that's just the matter of, of, of medicine being more of an art than a science. Yeah, and, and Tony, I mean, you, uh, you and I and your office and I have had many cases together. You're a local attorney here. Of course, you handle you know, a wide variety of cases nationally, and you know, you're one of the foremost experts on what juries thinks, how to pick a jury, and you know, I would... If I were in the position of the prosecutor, I would welcome the defense opening this up as an issue to the jury. I think 
the jury looks at red herrings like that and they, you know, convict these four individuals faster than ever. Um, I want to just turn your attention quickly uh, to a civil suit. I don't want you to violate any confidences, of course, or preview anything you don't want to preview, but I anticipate that there will be a civil suit. And can you talk to our listeners about, maybe educate them a little bit quickly on the difference between the standard of proof in a criminal case that the state of Minnesota now has to prove versus the um, burden of proof in a civil case, and also how important this time period that it that these that that it took for Mr. Floyd to die tragically on the ground, and how important that will be in explaining to a jury the true pain and suffering that this individual underwent um, as his life was taken from him. I know those are two very broad questions, and I'm, we, don't, we have a limited amount of time, but uh, I think that's a really inter- those are interesting uh, points that our listeners haven't heard much uh, about uh, yet on this case. Yeah, thank you. I'd be happy to explain the different burdens of proof. So both in a civil case and a criminal case, you, bo- you have to prove your case, except when we say we have to prove in a criminal case, it's a different level of proof. So that if, if all things being equal, if, if this were everyday life, you would have to prove a criminal case up to this level, a way you can't even see it on my screen. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. However, when it comes to proof in a civil case, we bring the line back and all we have to do is tip the scale in order to prove our case. It's not this burden way up here. It's one where we tip the scale. And if we tip the scale more probably true than not, then we have met our burden on the case. And that's the big difference. We always have to prove our case. It's a different scale. So if you think of Lady Justice, the scale tips ever so slightly in a civil case. It has to tip a heck of a lot in a criminal case in order to prove. And what about... uh your thoughts on um, a civil suit in terms of how a jury would look at the time period that Mr. Floyd was uh, in police custody and, um, you know, what a jury would think of how this death and murder took place. Well, first of all, you know, Ben Crump, who's the lead lawyer on this, he's been doing an, an outstanding job it really messaging the public. He's been talking about not one minute, not two minutes, not three minutes, going all the way to eight minutes in 46 seconds. It's just a lot, a lot of time. And I think when we are able to establish in front of a jury the amount of time that they did that and the amount of opportunities that were lost to save his life, um, I, I, I think it's going to be vexing. And especially when you consider that the Minneapolis Police Department was under decree, they were under some sort of order um, to ban these sort of chokeholds. They were supposed to be trained. Clearly, the training didn't succeed. And, and, and what I've been saying is that it wasn't only Derek Chauvin who was placing his knee on, on the neck of George Floyd. It was the entire weight of the Minneapolis Police Department who had this custom practice and policy of violating people's rights. And this clearly was, if there ever is an example of excessive force, this is an example of excessive force, force which leads to death. 
Last question, Tony. I know you are, again, very, very busy. We, we, we really appreciate your time this morning on Legal Faceoff. Uh, President Trump this morning, in talking about some economic numbers, said that um, Mr. Floyd should be happy. I think his words were, this is great news for him. I can't imagine the impact that that would have on um, Mr. Floyd's family. Uh, I saw the video yesterday with his son, um, you know, very, very, uh, very sad uh, situation, of course, for the family. I can only imagine what they think when the president of the United States says something like this would be good news for Mr. Floyd. Um, any thoughts on that? I know it's, you know, you probably haven't had a chance to process that it's brand new, but how does a family feel about statements like that? That statement appalls me. It's appalling that it's a good day for George Floyd. George is dead because people violated his rights, because we have a systemic culture of abuse in this country, of racial inequality, when it comes to policing white people versus black people. I, I live in this country. I believe in America. And everybody that lives in this country is an American. And I want us all to be treated equally. Our, our president has never been into a neighborhood where people face inequality every day. He has never sat with a family whose son, whose brother, whose father, whose cousin, whose uncle was publicly executed. I dare this president to do any of those things. And I think he will retract his statement that it was a good day for George Floyd because I am disgusted by that statement personally. Tony Romanucci, founding partner of Romanucci and Blandin, um, handles cases nationwide, has been doing it for years, uh, frequent guest on our show. Tony, please come back and keep us posted on this very important story. We really appreciate your time on Legal Faceoff on WGM. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. It is the first week of June here on Legal Faceoffs, a very interesting time for this country. Rich Lenkov, Sam Paniotovic, Tina Martini will actually join us at the end of the show. And Rich, we wake up every morning. We don't know what is coming. We don't know what's ahead. Uh, before we get to our guest, Mr. McCord, anything you'd like to add? Yeah, difficult time, obviously. Um, you know, we usually present a variety of legal stories, some of which are entertaining, some of which are humorous, some of which deal with, you know, much lighter topics. This week, we decided to uh, devote the entire uh, podcast to what's obviously the most important thing in our lives right now, which is all of the issues surrounding the alleged murder of Mr. Floyd and, you know, all of the unrest we're seeing in the streets and the very understandable feelings that people are having. We released this um, a really interesting interview earlier in the week uh, dealing with this issue, and we've got some amazing guests lined up today to uh, help our listeners uh, focus on what we think are some interesting legal issues surrounding this whole uh, this whole uh, this whole um, situation. Yeah, thanks to the whole team here at LFO for putting all this together. And if you missed anything, wgnradio.com. You can always go there 
And uh, check out Legal Faceoff also wherever you consume your podcast. Three main topics today. Trump saying that Antifa is a terrorist group, citizens arrest laws, and how the legal industry will move on if it can after the death of George Floyd. Joining us now to lead things off, she is the legal director at ICAP, the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, also visiting professor of law at Georgetown Law. She spent over 20 years with the DOJ. She is Professor Mary McCord, leading it off on LFO. Hello, Professor. Hello, nice to be here. Professor, um, a few days ago, President Trump tweeted that he would designate Antifa as a terrorist organization. Of course, he hasn't given much direction as to how he would do that. Our understanding of uh, federal law is that a president can designate a foreign organization as terrorist, but not necessarily a domestic organization. Can you explain to us what, if any, legal authority the executive branch has to do that and also address what the Insurrection Act is that we've heard about this week? Sure. So under federal law, it's actually not the president. It's the Department of State in consultation with Departments of Treasury and the Attorney General can designate foreign organizations as terrorist organizations. And with that comes criminal liability for anyone or any business or entity that provides any type of material support or resources to that organization. So you couldn't send them money, you couldn't provide yourself as a resource, you couldn't send equipment, anything like that would be a crime. But there is no legal authority under U.S. law for designating domestic organizations as terrorist organizations. And that's for good reason, because the First Amendment protects domestic organizations. The First Amendment doesn't protect foreign organizations. So here in this country, we don't designate organizations based on ideology as terrorists or anything else because there's a freedom to express ideologies, even ideologies that might be abhorrent to the most of the population. As to your second question about the Insurrection Act, the Insurrection Act is a, a very historic act that allows for the president to call forth the active duty military in order essentially to suppress insurrection when there is in where when the uh, law enforcement has otherwise been unable to enforce federal law um, it can work in a couple of ways it can work when state governors or state authorities ask for help from the federal government or it can be imposed by the federal government with a presidential proclamation that exists that existing law enforcement resources are insufficient essentially to quell the threat of insurrection or rebellion. So you've given us a lot to consider there. So there is no legal authority to do this, period. Even if there was, let's assume for a second that there was, that the president had some basis to make that statement. He's obviously singled out Antifa. Um, my understanding is that there is no such thing as an organization called Antifa, that it's a disparate group of people with different viewpoints that you oversimplify by calling them an organization. How would you even go about practically designated Antifa, quote unquote, as a terrorist organization, even if there was a legal basis to do so? Well, I think it'd be very difficult for the reason you just indicated. I mean, Antifa stands for anti-fascist. It's an ideology, right? It's a, a, and a lot of people in this country are anti-fascist. Now, Antifa as sort of a movement, you know, act of an activist movement does have adherents who, you know, participate in protests, sometimes even uh, the more radical elements participate in some acts of um, not serious violence, but bottle throwing, some some vandalism, things like that. 
But that's just, you know, some group of people within a broader ideology. So I am not aware of any, you know, nationwide organizational structure, no leadership uh, structure, no hierarchy, no, um, you know, mission statement or organizational statement or, or anything like that for Antifa. There might be local groups that call themselves Antifa. That's possible, just like we have local groups that call themselves all types of other movements. Um, but I think it would be a practical impossibility. I mean, he can say the words, I'm going to designate Antifa, but who are you even designating? Like what individual, the government right now wouldn't really have any ability to say that any individual is a member of this Antifa. And if I could just continue for a moment, it re- even if he could, even if there was an organizational structure and even if there was legal authority and, you know, through uh, that legal authority, Antifa was designated, the material support statute I, men- I mentioned a few moments ago still would not apply because by its own terms, it, apply- it criminalizes providing material support and resources to a foreign terrorist organization. So even if he designated Antifa, uh, even if he could do that, it is still domestic. And so that statute would not apply. So let's just play this out. And, you know, now we've established, I think, at least through your opinion, that there's no legal authority and practically it's almost impossible to uh, enforce such a move. But let's assume for a second that we live in a world where none of that matters. And sometimes I, if, you know, it seems like we are living in that world under you know, what we hear from the White House. And this case makes its way to the U.S. Supreme Court, because to your point, these are certainly issues of first impression in many cases and deal with the First Amendment. Given the current makeup of the Supreme Court, which is certainly uh, we're dealing with a conservative majority, I know it's hard to speculate, given you think that this doesn't hold any legal weight. How do you think the current makeup of the Supreme Court would deal with this issue? Well, the Supreme Court has dealt with issues involving First Amendment rights related to the designation of foreign terrorist organizations already in a case called Holder v. Humanitarian Law Project. And that was a case where an organization domestically wanted to contribute training and other resources to a foreign terrorist organization. But their theory was that foreign organization also engages in non-terrorist activities, right? They engage in lobbying the government for autonomy. They engage in political speech, etc. And the organizations in America were saying, all we want to do is support those non-terrorist activities. Now, our Supreme Court said, no, we don't parse it that way. When it's a foreign terrorist organization, you can't support it no matter what, because money is fungible. But they put a caution in that opinion. They said, what we're saying here today, you know, might be very, very different if we were talking about domestic organizations. And they really ha- they, they put a very strong caution in any type of designation of domestic organizations because of the First Amendment. Um, if you don't mind, though, I'd like to also focus in on some of the dangers of this oh, yeah. rhetoric, even though there's no real legal authority, even though there's no real practical ability to de- designate Antifa. But by using the rhetoric of terrorism, and, and mobilizing the apparatus of the counterterrorism program in the U.S. We're seeing massive shows of force by National Guards, by in D.C. here where I am, we're having the, the um, other federal law enforcement like the DEA and the Customs and Border Patrol and even Bureau of Prisons officials 
being mobilized out on the streets to provide law enforcement that they're not trained for. We've got armored vehicles in the streets. This sort of massive show of force and use of loose terms like terrorists really um, sets a pall across the country in terms of cracking down on First Amendment protected speech. Because even though there might be elements at these protests who are engaging in violence and destruction of property, not might be, we know there are, we've seen it on videos. That is still a small percentage of the vast amounts of peaceful protesters who are exercising their First Amendment protected rights. And when you start banding around words like terrorism, that really sends a message uh, from our government right now that this type of constitutionally protected activity is, is, it blurs the line between constitutionally protected activity and terrorism. And I think that's very dangerous because it gives sort of a carte blanche to um, law enforcement and counterterrorism officials, of which I was one for over 20 years, so I, I, I'm not anti-law enforcement or anti-CT, but it, it, it sort of gives them a carte blanche to use a heavy hand and, and use the type of resources they might use against a real terrorist threat against law-abiding people. And we certainly saw that with the tear gassing of peaceful protesters in Lafayette Park across from the, the White House just a few days ago, who by all accounts were doing nothing violent at all just peacefully protest and were uh, and were tear gassed and um, and shot with rubber bullets. And Professor, to underline that, we're seeing some law enforcement uh, personnel who are not even identified. You can't tell what agency they're with. They're black shirts, black boots, black helmets, things you see out of, you know, a movie maybe, um, these unnamed, unmarked law enforcement officials guarding, you know, different federal buildings. It's scary. At the very least, you would want to know who these people are and, you know, what possible relevance could you have for a Federal Bureau of Prison uh, security personnel guarding buildings? There's absolutely no reason for any federal law enforcement to not have insignia on, not have identification. In fact, the Department of Justice has in the past chastised states for having their state law enforcement be unmarked. And when you think about it, particularly given the number of illegal and unlawful private militias roaming around out now. How, how is a person, how is a member of the public to know when someone is not bearing any insignia, whether they're actually official and legitimate or whether it's a private militia? So this right. is dangerous. It's dangerous for public safety. It's completely non-transparent. It really suggests there's something to hide here with law enforcement. I think it's just an absolutely terrible idea and the public deserves far, far better from our government. And we'll wrap up, but I know I know this is a really not technical way to do it, but if our listeners check out the Washington Post, here's a picture of some of these unmarked federal officials that are guarding structures, and it's scary. It's like somebody you would see uh, in 1950s, you know, communist Russia or something. That's exactly right. Very strange times. They don't even match. They, not only do they not have insignia, if you look closely, they have different helmets, different gear on. So, you know, it's, it's a bit of a motley crew, but that's, that's that is not helpful to public safety. That's just dangerous to public safety. She is Mary McCord, legal director at ICAP and visiting professor of law at Georgetown Law. Professor, thank you so much. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020. 
designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka, and Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas, starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Face-Off since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey & Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. You can follow us on Twitter. You can like us on Facebook. And after you listen to the show, let us know how we did. Rate, review, after you listen, wherever you consume your podcast. It is Legal Face Off here on WGN Radio. And from Chicago, we go to St. Louis now. Dana Mohauser spent 12 years with the U.S. Department of Justice. And now she's currently with the Chief Conviction and Incident Review Unit out of the state of Missouri. She joins us here on LFO. Welcome, Dana. Thank you for having me. Dana, the... Ahmed Arbery case seems like a lifetime ago, um, even though it was only a couple of weeks ago, and that dominated the national spotlight, of course, that being the very tragic situation in Georgia, where a father and son are now charged with murder um, after they are seen on a video um, stopping and ultimately, um, the allegation goes, murdering Mr. Arbery. They are alleging or they are anticipated to allege that they were uh, lawfully engaged in a citizen's arrest while apprehending Mr. Arbery. Citizen's arrests are something that I think a lot of our listeners hear about and sometimes even see on TV, but not something that you see with great frequency um, because of how long ago the laws around citizen's arrest go back. Can you explain to our listeners first what a citizen's arrest is and then how it might be applied as a defense in this case, in the Arbery case? I will. And I will actually start by telling you that even though this sounded like it happened now a lifetime ago, there was actually a development in the case today, uh, which is that the third man said that he now heard one of the men saying a racial slur over the body. So that is what has been reported in the news. And so it does continue to develop even as other events pile on top of it. So there's also been a third man who has been arrested, the third man who was involved. So what is a citizen's arrest? It actually happens more than you would think. So it dates back to medieval England when there was no standing police force. And so every citizen had not just the ability, but an obligation to arrest someone if they saw them. So it dates back to what we call English common law. But it is something it is something that happens more than you would think here, but not in the context that you would think. So it doesn't usually happen like this with people sort of following their neighbors instead of calling 911. The situations in which it happens a lot is it happens in shoplift, right? So think about it. You are in Walmart and you see somebody... You know, what was it? Was Jameis Winston stuck the crab legs down his pants, I think. Uh, and they... The public. Always, the public. Publix. Yes, it was Publix. Thank you. Um, uh, so there is not, 
those stores have their own private security forces and the authority that those private security forces use to detain people is often citizens arrest laws, right? Because otherwise you you can't just detain someone. So that's the basis for that. Uh, You see it sometimes used in, in hit and run situations. So if if there's a hit and run and somebody wants to stop the person from driving off, then then you can see it invoked there. Uh, but it's it's not used frequently in the in these days and times. So do you think those laws make any sense in 2020 when you've got such a prevalence of guns? Right. The difference in the Arbery case, many would argue, is that you should not empower an average person, even though I think the father had some police experience and law enforcement experience that you should not give the average citizen the ability to detain and arrest someone when so many people have guns, number one. And number two, the average citizen can't possibly be uh, expected to know the standards by which you have a basis to arrest someone and know the evidentiary standards that make up probable cause, for example. So does this law, do these laws make any sense in 2020? So you hit on exactly the right point, which is, look, in medieval England, they had clubs and they had pitchforks and those things are dangerous. But nowadays we live in a society where not only are there are a lot of dangerous and other semi-automatic weapons, but a lot of states have open carry laws. And so people can fire those openly. Uh, And so there are different consequences. And one way you can think about that is think about the training that a police officer gets before they decide whether to use force, right? I, when I, as a prosecutor who who has focused a lot of my career in prosecuting police officers, I've spent a lot of time in police academies and I have seen over and over again the training that those officers receive. And it is detailed and is it is extensive and there are a lot of PowerPoints and there is hands-on training and there are scenarios and in the better funded departments, there are actually active scenarios and a police officer goes through all of that before they decide whether they can use force. So it is dangerous to have individual citizens who don't have that training, but have that same authority. Yeah, a hundred percent. And the interesting thing I was thinking of in preparation for our discussion in the wake of the uh, Floyd situation is two things. Number one, would a citizen's arrest by the people that were videotaping the police have held up? In other words, you know, we all wish that the people, the bystanders who were yelling at the cops to stop what they were doing, we wish they would have made a citizen's arrest. Now, obviously, doing so with a police officer is more difficult, is my first thought. My second thought was, ironically, now that you see so many people calling into question the actions of police, to the point where some, I've seen some you know, municipalities say they will not be calling the police. Um, and some businesses saying they will not be calling the police. So you might see a rise in citizens making arrests on their own. So what are your thoughts on, on those two points? So it's an interesting question, right? I, I, I would not advise anyone to try to make a citizen's arrest of a police officer. Uh, they do carry a lot more lethal force than you do, a lot more force of a lot of different kinds. And there is a, uh, it's complicated, right? We have seen, we've all seen a lot of things on television this week or some of us in person this week that have been distressing. And it is the, the challenge is that police have authority to use force in most places, 
in the way that citizens don't. So for instance, let's take the Georgia law. So in, in Georgia, in order to make a citizen's arrest, you have to have either seen a crime be committed or have, I think it's his immediate belief or imminent belief that the, that the crime has been committed. So that is a much higher standard than the police themselves have. The police only need to have a probable cause standard before they can arrest someone to commit a crime. So not only do individuals have a different standard, they have to understand that standard. And there is, there can be significant financial liability for individuals, right? So even, I mean, the, the risk to human life is the, is the serious part that I would want anyone to consider if they were considering doing a citizen's arrest. But the, the, the very much secondary concern is, is you can get sued for it. Uh, and in a lot of states, there is a, you can get one of the, one of the ways that you can get sued is even if you thought you had a good faith belief in a lot of states, if the crime didn't actually happen, then you could get sued, right? So a police officer, if they have a good faith belief and they're mistaken, might not be liable in court. But in a lot of states, an individual who has a good faith belief and is mistaken would have to pay money damages in court. So there are so many reasons, the first of which, again, and the most important of which is risk to human life, that it's not a good idea. Dana, we appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. And we'll do it again down the road. Thanks so much. Face-off. Joining us now via Zoom, Brian Parker. He's a lawyer, also co-founder and CEO of Legal Innovators. That's legal-innovators.com. And he just wrote something up on law.com. The title, What the Death of George Floyd Should Teach the Legal Industry. Mr. Parker, welcome to the show. Thank you guys for having me. Brian, I was really taken by your uh, article um, on law.com. And I wanted you to give our listeners a little bit more information about some of your recommendations as to how we as attorneys can and should deal with our colleagues, with the profession, um, with each other, really, in the wake of what's going on in the world. Um, I know your article talks about some internal things we can do, some external. Let's talk first about internally. What do you think we should be doing when talking to uh, our colleagues and with attorneys across the aisle, maybe, um, in the wake of what's happened with Mr. Floyd? Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. Um, and so to take on that point, I think the very first thing is understanding right at the human level. Uh, as I say at the beginning of the article, and, and hopefully people will you know peruse it. I think it's only two pages. Um, and I make a statement that your black employees, friends, colleagues are not all right. Um, this is a continuing pattern that is that has been happening in our country. And even if it's not happened to one of them, it's happened to maybe a family member, um, a friend, et cetera. Uh, so check in on people. Um, and the first thing that I'm saying for friends, employers, is to check in and see where people's mental state is. Um, if they're not okay, um, is a conversation, is expressing uh, caring consideration for them, is that enough? If not, um, does your organization give them the space to do the healing that they need to do? Are you, do you offer wellness resources, those, those kinds of things? And then um, on the, also staying on the internal side, um, as, you, as you talk about diversity and inclusion initiatives, don't let the COVID pandemic be uh, an excuse to cut back on making the needed investments in diversity and inclusion. Um, we try to say, uh, drill down and use 
data to help drive your decisions. And one, one of the things that data says is that actually having more diverse teams is good for profit. So understand and keep those, uh, those, those things alive um, and, and, and try to make sure that you're giving opportunity to people to still rise and advance in this environment. So that's a little bit on the internal side. I'll pause there before we go. Yeah, it's a really excellent point. And, you know, we um, have covered this topic before, specifically the fact that diversity is not just good policy because it's important, but also to your point, it's good business practice, right? A lot of us in the, in the legal world are, let's face it, we're, um, you know, in the business of running a business. And part of that business is attracting clients and making sure we're meeting their needs also. And to your excellent point, more than ever, what I see from my clients that I represent, you know, many, many large corporations is not just, you know, giving lip service to diversity, but we have to actually provide them proof and evidence and, and data that we are taking that seriously. So that's a really excellent point. Let's move on to some external things that we can do um, you know, as lawyers and more importantly, as upholders of an oath, right? We, at the beginning of our career, take an oath and sometimes, you know, maybe don't remember exactly what we said all those years ago, but, you know, we're not just attorneys. We do take an oath to adhere to certain principles. And now I think is a great time to think about that and remember that we're not just, you know, filing lawsuits and answering discovery. That's right. Well, or as a, a friend and my business partner put it, if, you know, we wrote that on our essays to get into law school originally. And if the legal profession is not going to be the first amongst equals in terms of segments of society that can protect some of these ideals, who will it be? Um, one of the things that we're doing is we're bringing an industry-wide um, group of leaders together on the 30th of June to have a webinar to specifically talk about diversity inclusion. So I hope you and some of your listeners will tune in on that. Um, I'll go through quickly on the external um, pieces. I think we can learn a lot from the Minneapolis police chief who came out. Um, and this is, this is uh, precedent setting, right? He came out unequivocally. Uh, first of all, fire the people right away. When asked why did he fire them, it's just it's clear this is a this is a a, a crime of uh, moral turpitude. It's beyond comprehension. And when things are so black and white, it shouldn't take a lot of uh, it shouldn't take a lot of time. Um, I think we can do that in the workplace too, where we see egregious things. Uh, let, let's 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 call them out. Um, put political labels aside. Democrat, Republican, Independent. Let's use the relationships. You talk about filing lawsuits, but we also know how to write policy. We also have a credible amount of privilege within uh, our profession that can get to the lawmakers and say, uh, what about police oversight? What about laws that, that drive the kind of change in this society? What about leaving out things like chokeholds and that sort of thing, um, which have been you know, outlawed and written off as, as bad business practices? I think those would be some of the things that we can do. Um, having hard conversations like the one that we're having here, but let all parties express their, their real truth. I think we believe only if we take on racism in a very head-to-head -head way can we truly make progress. And we've got to sit down and have those, uh, have those kind of conversations. And so um, I also talked about lending your voice uh, in different forms. I talked about ours coming up. There are organizations that are doing fantastic work. Uh, the Equal Justice Initiative, led by Brian Stevenson, fantastic one to support. 
um, uh, my NYU law alumni uh, a couple years before me, but Sherilyn Eiffel over at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, focusing on voter rights, focusing on the reforms that we're talking about. So it takes money, it takes policy. So you can do some of all of the above in terms of driving some of this change that we know needs to, uh, it needs to happen. Brian, you and your colleagues are doing really excellent work. Um, we really appreciate you coming on and giving us the benefit of some of your time. And I encourage all our listeners and, and viewers to really uh, read the article and um, take part in some of what Brian's saying. Because, you know, more than ever, I think we need to remember that we've got, you know, some higher responsibilities than just the everyday uh, legal practice that we're involved in. So we really appreciate you coming on today and helping us out. Yeah, and if people want to dig more, if you don't mind, I'll give the website so that they can come to that. Yeah, so it's uh, www.legal-innovators.com. And even if it's not us, there are a lot of organizations within the legal community, like we've made a pledge to hire at least 30% uh, diversity. Uh, If it's not us, there are others that have made similar pledges and that are doing good work. Use your dollars and work with some of these small businesses to support them as you drive your DNI initiatives. And thank you uh, for the time and thank you for the listeners for this opportunity. And check the piece out, law.com on the death of George Floyd. Mr. Parker, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, guys. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Look who has joined the party. The legal grab bag, Tina Martini, is here. Very interesting show. Rich Lenkoff, Sam Panianovich. Thanks to Ben and Emily and Gabby for everybody making this thing work as it always happens on Zoom. Uh, Very interesting situation, obviously. And uh, we appreciate you tuning in. Uh, let's let's go to the five topics today, and the first one involves the uh, special responsibility of lawyers to speak out. We're going to talk a lot about speaking out and what the lawyers have to say. Yeah, the Chicago Bar Association, Sam, uh, released a statement this week about how attorneys have a special responsibility, uh, not just to practice law. And we actually covered this earlier with uh, with Brian, um, but just you know, as a reminder that we're all. We all took an oath when we started our career, and maybe it's a while ago for some of us, some of us more recent, but we do have a greater responsibility as attorneys than you know many other professions. Um, and I think it's a good chance to, and this article is a good chance to remind all of us what that is. And we are you know, officers of the court, and we do have a special responsibility. So maybe just throw it around, and you know, I think what we're doing today um, 
just it's obviously a tiny part of things that attorneys can do. But I think, you know, bringing to light some of the issues we've talked about earlier with our guests and that we'll talk about today, you know, that's a good step forward. But certainly want to hear from the rest of the crew about what you think we as attorneys could do and should do in, you know, times of social discord. Tina, what are your thoughts on, on the article and generally what our responsibilities are? Well, I think you've teed it up really nicely, Rich. I think because of um, our education and the fact that we did take an oath and we're held to ethical standards, I do think it makes our responsibility, um, it heightens our responsibility. So there's that whole aspect to it. But then there's also the aspect that because of the nature of our education and our awareness of things like the Bill of Rights and things like that, um, we have a real heightened sensitivity to issues relating to civil rights and just the basic um, foundations of what this country is based on. Like take the First Amendment, for example, and the right to protest and all of those other things that we've been seeing over the past few days. Um, we know better than I think anybody else what the meaning is of those rights, what the meets and bounds are. And we have the ability to flag earlier when things run afoul and when people's rights are being violated. And we are in a, in a position to do something about it in a way that a lot of other people aren't. And so I think we absolutely have a heightened responsibility to our fellow man when we see their rights being violated. Our panelists today on the web, Jay Gates from Gallagher and Ashley Alvarez, a return guest, attorney-in-law. Ashley, uh, you've been on the show before. I'll let you go first. What do you think about your responsibility as an attorney? Yeah, no, I mean, it's more than taking the oath. I think as right now, as people are fighting for, you know, the right to be seen, the right to be heard, and the right to be, like, it is our obligation to really call these things out. And I think, you know, I've, I've had a personal experience where, I was told incorrectly and, you know, it's, it, it can be troubling. It's really, it's, it's kind of terrifying to have somebody threaten the way that you understand and know and have learned and practiced the law. Um, but constitutional rights are the one thing that we shouldn't question at all. That should be the one thing we uphold. We make sure are protected right now, especially as, as we're looking at things, um, as I've experienced with the first and fourth amendment and fifth amendment and sixth amendment, um, they're key. Hey, you, you're not a lawyer, but you work and have worked with lawyers, uh, many lawyers over the years. You employ a lot of lawyers, and you also, I know, studied criminal justice at Nebraska. You know, we often talk on our show about how everyone hates lawyers until you need one, right? Um, right. It's, it's sometimes like, you know, uh, other professions that you don't like them until you actually need one. But what are your thoughts on the roles of lawyers during times of, you know, such civil unrest and, and discord and stress like we're, like we're in now? You know, that's a, that's a good way of putting it in the question. I really think that not only just lawyers, I think everyone needs to speak out. I think uh, all professions, all people, you know, this time of unrest for me uh, across the country every now and then we find that everyone needs to speak out. And I think we need to be able to speak out uh, regardless of our political uh, affiliations, but we need to stand up for what's right and what's wrong, especially within the Constitution, like Ashley mentioned. Um, this time right now, the country needs that, and everyone uh, should recognize that silence has really been the issue. So I think every time we end up talking about race, it's kind of silence. People are silent, and we need more people to speak out um, 
not only lawyers, I think members of law enforcement. We need more chiefs of police. We need more police unions to speak out when we see something like this that's just flat out right or wrong. We all need to speak out. That's kind of my view on it. Our second topic involves uh, a family autopsy, family of George Floyd. And uh, word out of this from Reuters out of Minneapolis, that this actually could bolster the defense of the police officer. Yeah, there's competing competing autopsies, um, which you do see on some occasions. You know, autopsies and uh, medical examinations are not an exact science to, um, you know, I've deposed a lot of these examiners, and you could have two equally competent medical examiners look at the same body or same evidence and come up with two different opinions. So at the end of the day, they're doctors, and, you know, doctors are fallible and have different opinions. That being said, uh, the breaking news today actually is that the autopsy from the county, from Hennepin County, revealed that um, Mr. Floyd had COVID, had signs of COVID-19, symptoms of COVID-19. And the question, of course, will be if that's true, and if it's also true that there were some uh, drugs in the system, as the autopsy uh, also is um, said to reveal, the effect that that has on the defense. To your point, Sam, it's um, inevitable that this will be an issue. Um, we're having uh, on the show tomorrow the Floyd family attorneys, and they're obviously taking the position that the autopsy unequivocally leads to the conclusion that he was suffocated by the knee of the police officer. Um, but, you know, we'll see how that plays out. Tina, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I agree with you, Rich, that I think that the defense is going to bring out whatever they can for purposes of trying to mitigate whatever sentence these guys get. Um, and I, I know that when I saw the news earlier today about the drugs in the system and the fact that he had COVID-19, that they're going to try to argue that somehow his death, his cause of death was not necessarily attributable to what happened to him, but it was that he had this pre-existing condition. I think that I had also heard that he had some sort of high blood pressure or heart condition, um, or at least there were some news outlets that had said that. But at the end of the day, um, all you have to do is watch that video and you know exactly how that man died. And it is disturbing, it is horrific, and it is very clear what happened to him, and it was awful. Yeah, Ashley, uh, it's hard to look at the video and come up with any other conclusion, no matter what an expert might say. And as someone who does a lot of litigation, and Jay knows this from years in litigation, is you could find an expert to say anything, right? Um, I don't know that you're going to convince any member of this jury to look at that videotape and think that it wasn't the severe compression to his neck that caused his death, that it was some either underlying heart condition, drugs in the system, or COVID, right? Yeah, this is very like structuralized distractions. You know, I think that we've We've instituted this in the way that we practice, uh, we, not myself, but the, the system has, to distract everybody from the real cause of death. And I hope that everyone sees beyond this because it's troubling that this is brought up. I know that it needs to be brought up because that is, that is a good defense attorney, but I hope that it is not enough to be that distracting because that video, I mean, like you said, it, Tina, that there's nothing else you need after that video. Jay, so I think it speaks to the point of, you know, unfortunately, we've seen so many of these cases over the years, and inevitably, it seems like there is, 
frequently, not always, certainly not always, but sometimes even frequently there is another site. And the reason you have to investigate these things so thoroughly is because you don't have all the, you know, the video doesn't always show all the evidence. Um, so in many cases, you know, there is another perspective um, and there is sometimes more to the story than what's seen on the video. In this case, the video tells everything. It's really hard to believe that you would need any other evidence. You want to hear from the doctors. You want to hear from the coroner, of course. But to Ashley's point, to, to Tina's point, the video says everything. I agree with you 100%. I echo the sentiments of what they're saying. I think um, I've seen plenty of cases where medical evidence will put a jury to sleep, whether it's on one side or the other. And I think less is more in this situation. I think you watch a grown man cry for his mom with a man on his neck and watch him die in eight minutes and 46 seconds. I don't know any reasonable jury member that's not going to say, look, I don't care what the underlying condition was. You put a 200 pound man on my neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And that's a wrap. When you have two other guys holding him down too, holding and down handcuffs. Yes. I mean, it was, it was awful. I mean, it was the guys on his neck and on his back and, and just, I mean, they were trying to snuff the life out of him. Well, I want to pick up on that for a second, because Jay, you, in your former position as a risk manager where you and I first met, you had, what, dozens of trials? Hundreds, I mean, whatever the number is, you, you know, you're someone who's seen a lot of jury trials, seen a lot of voir dire. We saw in the Rodney King case, uh, the jury was moved. We've seen in a lot of cases that, you know, juries are moved. I want to get to ahead of that, because that's down the road. But are right. you concerned that... We might not get we might get a, a jury that's not going to look at these facts fairly. That might be biased. Again, it seems shocking that any human being can look at this video and come up with anything but a conviction of murder. But you've been in enough courtrooms, and I know, seen enough juries to know that nothing's a slam dunk. So, what are your thoughts on sort of down the road the jury process in this case? You know, I, that's a that's a great question. I'm not sure. I mean, you, you would like to think that this is open and shut, and that's the argument that many Americans see when they look at this. But like you said, jury selection is, is going to be critical. It's going to be hard to find a jury member that doesn't know this case. So I think that's going to be a huge part of the problem. But then you got to find people who, you know, you're going to find a lot of juries are very sympathetic to police officers, and it's difficult to convince them that they could do no wrong. But um I think I think a reasonable jury should find a conviction. Uh, I think having the attorney general of Minnesota take this over probably helps. And they have, from what I understand, I was listening to a podcast the other day, uh, the Hennepin County Attorney's Office has successfully convicted uh, police officers for murder. So I think um, that that's evidence that they may be able to have some skill sets that they're going to need on this. And it's such a, before we jump on, it's such an interesting point about, you know, there's no there's no human being in the world. There's no member of that jury that hasn't or will have seen this video. And, you know, Tina, the whole concept of you have to find a jury that hasn't seen it is ridiculous. I mean, that whole concept is out the window. And just I was we talked on the last podcast about this new Netflix series um, trial by media. You know, and they cover the Bernie Getz uh, trial from back in the 80s. Bernie Getz was a vigilante who shot for black man on the subway in New York, and they move the, they move the trial to Albany, right? Of all places from New York, that's a very obviously diverse community, to Albany, New York, which might as well be, you know, Florida. 
And, you know, even back in the 80s, they were still wedded to this idea that you have to find jurors who haven't seen or heard about the story. That's ridiculous. The standard is whether having seen anything on, on media, having seen the video, whether you can put any preconceived notions of guilt or innocence aside. So, Tina, I mean, there's no question that you're going to have jurors who have seen it. Right. And I hope there's no thought of moving this outside of, you know, Minnesota, because that would be, or Minneapolis, because that would be a travesty. Well, and I completely agree with you, Rich. And I think that the way you framed it is exactly right, that the issue is about being able to be fair and putting things aside rather than never having seen it. Especially because look at the look at the times we live in with social media and how ubiquitous news is and all the different social media platforms. I mean, there's not a second that goes by that we're not inundated with some form of news. And and so it's just completely unrealistic to think that we can find a jury that has had that that has never seen any of this before. It's just not gonna happen. Topic number three involves former NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick, who is probably still better than half the starting quarterbacks in the league. I'll say it so you don't have to. He has announced a legal defense initiative for the Freedom Fighters in Minneapolis. Yeah, I mean, you know, Kaepernick suddenly is uh, obviously looked at now in a whole new light, right? I mean, to your point, Sam, he's been, let's just call it what it is. He's been blackballed by the NFL. The fact that, you know, someone who took the Niners to what, at least one NFC title, maybe two, I don't remember, but at least one NFC title game um, and went to the Super Bowl, I think, right, if I remember? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That was the Harbaugh Bowl. Yeah, the Harbaugh Bowl. So the fact that he can't get a job in the NFL, I think, is uh, reflective of the, of the fact that he's been blackballed. So to his credit, you know, uh, he started a legal defense fund, but people are now buying into what, caused such a protest before. Um, and the idea that someone kneeling now uh, compared to what we see going on and the fact that the message wasn't heard and the fact that, you know, this man was killed literally before our eyes on the streets of an American city. Um, you know, I think we owe Kaepernick uh, a debt of gratitude and, and maybe a collective apology as well. Tina, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I agree with you, Rich. I, it is, again, I can't come up with any words to describe what happened last week. Um, what's really horrific, and I had a chance to listen to a little bit of the funeral today for Floyd. Um, you know, going through the litany of how many people have lost their lives from this type of activity and behavior. Um, I mean, I think that what happened to George Floyd was at like a whole new level, but it, 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 it doesn't mitigate what happened to others who came before him. And I just, I, I, I'm very saddened for Colin Kaepernick. I mean, he is a hero. I think when you and I have talked about him over the years on this show, we've always cast him as doing the right thing um, and agreeing with his position. Um, it's just really sad that it took something this horrible for people to realize and to actually listen to him and think about what he said. And I think it's awful that his career has suffered because of him. He has no career. Ashley, the CEO of Twitter uh, uh, um, donate, is donating, Jack Dorsey is donating $3 million to Kaepernick's legal defense fund. You know how important it is to have resources to uh, help represent people who don't have those resources themselves. So this, fun and this money will go a long way towards that. 
Yeah, no, and and what I I mean, I've always been supportive of Colin Kaepernick, but I honestly kind of want to push back on the fact that maybe he was made for something more. I mean, I really think that he took what, and it's so unfortunate, and and sometimes that happens to to really great leaders. But look at what he's come out of with this. He has know your rights. He's teaching kids knowing how to use the the Constitution in a real way and putting them through camps and all throughout the nation. And now with this legal defense fund, I mean, he's offering resources to communities of of color predominantly that need it most. And I mean, listen, I love football as much as the next person. I'm not trying to say we didn't need him there, but maybe we needed him more somewhere else. So I'm- That's that's an interesting point. Jay, what are your thoughts on uh, Cap and his legacy and this new fund he started? You know, I think Cap's a great activist. I certainly supported his cause and, you know, I think he like you're right. He's been blackballed by the NFL, uh, but you know, he. I'm a former football player and a former risk manager, and so I don't think I would have put the salary of a starting quarterback in the NFL at risk. So he's a braver man than me. Uh, you know, he put all that at risk and he lost it. Uh, but like to Ashley's point, you know, he's definitely serving a greater purpose and off the field. You know, there's a lot of guys in the NFL that do the, uh, for the Walter Payton man of the year award for what they do off the field that he's a perfect guy for that. It's just that he lost his career over it. Sam, you think Brees has adequately walked back his statements? I know he issued an apology today. Drew Brees of course came out yesterday and, uh, voiced some opposition to Kaepernick, not specifically, but the whole idea of kneeling during the anthem. And that resulted in Twitter just going crazy. Um, uh, in anger about Breeze's statements, and he's since walked that back today. Sam, you followed Breeze forever since his days at Purdue. Uh, you think he has uh, adequately walked that back, or do you think this will follow him for a while? No, he looks like a sucker. Ed Reed said that, too. Did you catch what Ed Reed, the former uh, Baltimore Raven and Miami Hurricane, said? He's, you a sucker. And um, talk about tone deaf. I mean, good Lord. Could that, could that have been timed any more poorly? Yeah. Um, and now the teammates in that locker room are – are starting to sound off and weigh in. Michael Thomas, all-pro wide receiver, I think he tweeted a, a vomit emoji. Um, I, don't, I don't think that the people that have gone to war with him, now not literal war, but football war every week, I don't think they're going to look at him the same uh, going forward. I could be wrong, but that's a very, very idiotic response by somebody who has a lot of power. Absolutely. Uh, we'll see. And I, I wonder uh, on that Saints win total, maybe go under there. That team could uh, – Team could explode. Uh, number four out of five here on the legal grab bag and legal faceoff. Uh, we had Brian Parker on the show earlier, and he wrote this in Law.com about what the death of George Floyd should and could teach the legal industry. So the question out of that is, what can lawyers learn from this? Yeah, it's a really great topic, and one I was really excited to talk to uh, uh, Tina and also Jay and Ashley about because uh, Brian, we unfortunately didn't have enough time to really dive into the subject in great detail with Brian, who really wrote an excellent article in law.com about what we as lawyers, and this picks up a little bit of what we talked about earlier, but how we as lawyers should deal with uh, our colleagues, each other, our employees, um, and just the world in general, both internally, if we're at a law firm or a company and externally going forward, because, you know, it would be obviously a shame if at the very least we didn't learn from this, um, and, you know, altered our behavior, I don't think any of us could say that our 
uh, interactions are perfect or that we can't improve on them. So Brian talked about, for example, just talking to your colleagues, certainly talking to uh, your colleagues who are you know, different from you and learning from them and speaking honestly and openly about the challenges we have and the mistakes we've made and what we can do better. Um, and certainly that extends to people outside the firm. And, you know, we talked earlier about some of the pro bono initiatives that you can get involved in and some of the ways you could put your anger and where, you know, where, where places you could put your energy. We're all full of understandably a lot of anger, rage um, uh, right now. Um, and where you can effectively put that as attorneys, I think, as we mentioned earlier, we're sort of uniquely qualified to put some of that energy somewhere. So I learned a lot from my brief time with talking to Brian and reading the article. And, and Tina, what are your thoughts on you work at a big firm, right? You, 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 you interact with uh, hundreds, if not thousands of, of people frequently, many of whom are different from you, different races, different genders, different ethnicities. Um, what are your thoughts on moving forward from this? Well, I think that it's really important, first and foremost, to understand that this has really impacted everybody very significantly, and the way in which people react to it may manifest itself differently. So I think just making sure, and we actually had a program today at my firm about knowing when, how to read symptoms of when a colleague is in need of help, whatever that help might be. And so it's really just being sensitized to this and, and having empathy and being able to see from other people's frames of reference. I mean, that's what we as lawyers, I think, pride ourselves on um, in terms of what makes us good at what we do is being able to put ourselves in our client's shoes. Well, we need to put ourselves in our fellow man's shoes and, and try to understand their pain and help them through it. Um, and I think it's, it's interesting that this all coincides with Pride Month, with, which just started at the beginning of the week. Um, and we celebrated at my firm Pride Month by watching a movie that's about to be released about gay people who were trying to be deprogrammed before the 1960s and 70s movement um, against that by the American Psychiatric Association and other medical you know, professionals. But I think it's all of the same ilk. It's this lack of sensitivity to, to each other and needing to make sure that we do what we can to protect people as lawyers, that we defend those who can't defend themselves, and that we lead others in terms of creating a culture of understanding and, and not just tolerance, but understanding. Yeah, well stated. Uh, Ashley, what are your thoughts on, on this? I, I think it's really empowered me. Um, I've been kind of scared. I've been in a lot of situations previously where I didn't know if it was correct to speak up I knew that I was either the only Latina or, you know, whatever be the case, woman, um, young person, and it put me in a vulnerability. And I've been very fortunate now with my current role that I work directly with allied groups. So we're overseeing, you know, LGBTQ, Latinx, African-American women, uh, youth, you know, I'm working with the most diverse people. And it's made me realize that I can't be silent. Those aren't rooms for me. So I can be someone now, you know, I've, I've always been more vocal, but I, I don't think that I can be complacent in, in those situations where things are going on in our law firm or within my relationships or, or whatever be the case. I think that it is really important that we, as, as for humanity, that we, we speak out, you know, and that we, we really protect people and, and 
identities and races. And, and it's just, it's, it's not that anymore. And I, I think I was feeling that before this. And now I, I know even more, it's kind of awakened something different that I, I need, I need, I feel empowered in a different way. Ashley, in the time I've known you, I've always known you to be very vocal. So I, I, uh, I'm looking forward <laughs> to the even 2.0 version of, uh, Radical of Ashley. <laughs> uh, Jay, you, you hire many lawyers. You have hired many lawyers over the years, probably too many to count, some good, some bad. Um, uh, what, what will you look for in lawyers going forward? We talked to, you know, Brian earlier about the importance, uh, in, business offices and CEO offices in hiring firms that have a commitment and actually are, you know, actually enforcing diversity policies. As someone who has hired many lawyers, will you look at the attorneys that you hired differently? Will you look for different qualities now going forward? I, that's, a, that's a great way of asking the question because absolutely, and I always have and I will continue to. There's been so many times I've been, uh, you know, in a firm that's looking to get business or things like that. And you walk along the walls and it's just a fraternity list of photos of all the members of the firm. And it's either all men or all white men or, you know, maybe a few women sprinkling but no color, no people of color. And as a hiring individual, whether it was lawyers, brokers, and there's been plenty of where I walk in and I see no one that looks like me. No one that looks like Ashley. And so absolutely, I think it, it will impact the decision and we have to speak out and you have to have not only diversity and inclusion, you have to practice it and implement it. And that has to come from top down. Um, everyone has to support it and it has to be real. Can't just say, oh, we got Jay Gates over here. He works for us. You know, you gotta not only be included, but you gotta feel like you belong. That's the real thing is once you get there, do you feel like, oh, I'm the only, I'm the only black guy in the firm. There's 99 other guys. There's nothing here for me. Like I'm sure Ashley could say, hey, as a Latina, she may be the only one. And she's, yes, she's there, but she's not really part of it and feels belonging. That's, that's a big part of it. You got to feel like you belong there. Yeah, I think that's so right. That's so well stated. And, you know, the days of firms window dressing um, have to be gone, right? I mean, it's, it's easy to meet, you know, the, 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 the technical requirements that some companies look for and then forget it the other 364 days of the year, you're not trying to impress a client. But I think one of the positive takeaways from this will be that attorneys will and firms will realize how important diversity is and actually be held accountable if they're not practicing it because of the awareness that we're all gaining from this so that you can't just get away with all of the practices that you just very articulately stated. I actually have a client, Rich, that, um, sorry to interrupt, Sam, I have a client that actually reached out to me during COVID and said, I mean, they're, they're very active in DNI, and they reached out and they said, this is the type of time when firms start cutting people, and we are reaching out to you now before you start making these decisions to make sure that if you have to cut people in your workforce that you realize what the impact is from a DNI perspective. And if there's anything that we, your client can do to help you, we are here to help you, which I thought was amazing. I've, it was the first time I've ever had a client do that. And it was, I thought, very impactful. Wow. Our last topic, 
I know this podcast is essential, but I don't know if lawyers are essential. I still don't know. That's why you all are smarter than me to answer this question. Are lawyers essential workers during a pandemic? Well, it's really relevant to everything we're talking about because, um, you know, we've all seen people take to the streets. We've all seen, um, you know, people who are upset or, you know, stressed out and very unhappy, obviously, with what's happening. They're taking to the streets. Um, one of the issues that many people have raised is, will this result in a spike in COVID claims? Because, you know, obviously we're seeing tens of thousands of people out in the streets when social distancing was supposed to be still a thing. Um, and Ashley and I were talking about this offline because she's got some personal experience from this week on this. And, you know, I want everyone to remember this kind of comes full circle. It's a good way to end full circle how we started because attorneys have a special responsibility. And we're also fortunate that we have some certain um, powers, for lack of a better term. And, you know, one of those is that we are essential workers, at least in our state, Illinois, where some of us are, uh, from the day that our governor decreed what are essential services back on March 20th, that list included attorneys. And, you know, I don't think he meant that because simply we want to go to work and bill a lot of hours and make a lot of money. But I'm certain that part of those responsibilities were envisioned to include helping people, fighting for justice, enabling people who can't help themselves. And obviously that's more important now in the wake of what we saw last week than ever. So I feel fortunate that I work in a profession that does deem me essential and that we all can use our ability and our license uh, for, for these issues and for, for some good and for some justice. Couldn't agree more, Rich. I, um, I, I never, you know, before I went to law school, I didn't really get the power of, the, of a law degree and the power of being a lawyer. It's not a power for us. It's a power to empower those who are around us. And we do speak a foreign language to a certain extent. And the education we get enables us to do things that people are just not equipped to do without the education. And um, I feel very fortunate, as you do, that we are in a, in a state and in a profession. And my former law school classmate that J.B. Pritzker saw us as essential workers um, yeah, that being said, Jay, the good news is you don't have to be a lawyer to speak out, to demonstrate, to uh, make change. We've seen, if nothing else we've seen this week, it's that every individual has the uh, right and the ability to speak their mind and hopefully result in some, some positive changes. I agree with you 100%. I think that's uh, very well said. And yeah, I think I think some, some lawyers are probably more essential than others right now, right? Uh, if you're in the insurance business, there's so much work to be going on. And I think uh, the other one that people probably wouldn't admit to, but divorce attorneys. I mean, if your marriage was in trouble heading into this quarantine and shelter in place, either you're going to be COVID-19 baby boom of 2021, or it's going to be enough to push you over the edge and divorce attorneys are just making tons of cash. Yeah, I mean, I, I hadn't thought of that. I was actually thinking of, you know, how with the protests now and, and, you know, I've been helping people who have, you know, a list that's been given to me, people who need representation and 
that were peacefully protesting and arrested. And, and that for me is like, that has to be essential. That's your constitutional right um, for the client. And I, I hadn't thought of divorce, but I had thought of the baby. I had thought of what was going to happen, uh, you know, nine months ago. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that is true. <laughs> Ashley, I know that I know that you're probably uh, would welcome the help of other attorneys, right? Is there a resource that you can uh, tell our viewers and listeners about if they do want to devote some energy and resources to uh, some of the work you've been doing? Yeah, um, thank you. So I'm partnering up with Save Money Save Life, and they are doing. We've transitioned from helping families in need every week with food and PPE to now moving into street med and know your rights. And so that would be like contacting them, contacting me personally. Um, I'm trying to figure out what that looks like. They can hit us up on the, uh, on the website <laughs> or on social media. We'll, we'll get them to the right place. We'll get them to. Yeah, your home number, Mitch. Just throw it out there for everybody. I know. I was like, I, this feels problematic. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, I, I really encourage. As you know, there there is a threat, and, and I think as we were talking about what happens when you don't know your rights, when you don't know the Constitution, and you are given, you know, you take the oath to know it. Um, there's been a lot of issues with attorneys not being able to see their clients during protest or. I was deemed uh, by a precinct non-essential and threatened that I was violating curfew. So it is very important now that we stick together and help during these situations um, because it's getting worse. So Little did that person know who they were talking to. I know. I was like, oh, I'm going to let that hold for a second. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> no, I was, I was calm and collective. It will come back. <laughs> She is Ashley Alvarez, return guest, attorney at law, and joining us for the first time, Jay Gates, who has a podcast, Know the Risk, and you can listen at knowtherisk.biz. How would you summarize the podcast, Jay, in like 10 seconds or less? The podcast is all about risk management and insurance. We cover all kinds of issues. I'm looking to get rich on my show here soon, but it's a great podcast, and it's available anywhere you download your podcast. Know the Risk. We appreciate you both joining us. For Rich and Tina, my name is Sam. Thanks to the crew. We'll talk to you next time on Legal Face Off. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.